Some of you have been following on the news, likely this uh, uh, recently, what's happening in Venezuela with their presidential uh, uh, election and the fallout of that. And it speaks to something that is uh, probably a part of every generation, but it is particularly a part of our generation, and it is about power. Uh, we live in a world of power politics, of power couples, uh, of power grabs, and I think it affects how we relate ourselves to power, uh, how we see power, how we view power, what we do with power when uh, we might have uh, finding ourselves uh, with a measure of, of, uh, of power to deal with. Uh, Pope Francis compared uh, the wrong use of power to drinking gin on an empty stomach. And I'm not quite sure what, that, what that's like, but he, he says, you feel dizzy, you get drunk, you lose your balance, and you'll end up hurting yourself and those around you unless you connect that power with humility and tenderness. Through Christ-like humility and concrete love, on the other hand, power, the highest, the strongest one, becomes a service, a force for good. I think he got that one right. I think that he has uh, uh, pointed at not only a wrong use of power, but also the power, uh, the influence that power can have when it is channeled uh, for for good in in a way that comes with humility and tenderness. We can often get frustrated with people who abuse their power over us. And sometimes what happens when, 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 they, when we get frustrated with the way other people use power is we can become hungry for power ourselves and often start using power in ways that are unhealthy and often are inconsistent with what we would have otherwise uh, believed about uh, how we should relate to it. Uh, we, we may not... Uh, Maybe you're in a situation where you don't find yourself grabbing power, but you have been given some power. And maybe as you look at the power that you've been given, if you don't have a clear vision for how that power is to be used, uh, it can be uh, a very negative influence. You can, you can use your power in ways that you have subconsciously seen in other people, uh, seen in the world around you and not use that power for, uh, for good, not use that power in a way that would uh, honor and glorify God. I think we can often associate power, and maybe when you've been hearing me use the word power, you've been thinking big government, uh, big corporations, and uh, power in that respect. And, and maybe you are feeling uh, either the allure of power or the pull of pain of power in, uh, in your job. But when I'm using the word power, I'm not necessarily talking about big power like that. Uh, a very small child with a strategically timed tear and uh, a little fit of, uh, uh, of anger can, can pull a power play on uh, on their parents, right? Uh, parents can abuse the power they have over their children. Husbands and wives can 
use, uh, use silence and sarcasm and anger to pull a power play on their spouses. Uh, we, we're in the church. You're not amount, we're not immune from power plays and power brokers. Probably every person in this room at some level interacts with a measure of power and will either use that power positively or in ways that are both negative and destructive. And so what I want to do this morning is really to try and get a vision for how God would have us to use power, uh, how, how we can relate to power in healthy ways. And what I want to see is that we can be content to lend power instead of grabbing at power when we have learned to receive power uh, in healthy ways, to receive God's power. Uh, we're continuing our study in uh, the life of Abraham. Uh, we're talking about how to walk into blessing, and today we come to Genesis chapter 14. And so if you'd turn there, I'm going to read from verses 11 to 24, and uh, encourage you to read along with me. Genesis 14, uh, 11 to 24. Genesis 14, 11 to 24. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. Now this passage begins in the midst of a power grab. And it warns us, about, warns us against going to war to get more. Uh, it, it starts in the midst of a... Uh, a, a a rebellion, a fight for power. 
Uh, I spared you. We, we started at verse 11, and I, I spared you verses 1 to 10 because it's filled with lists of the names of kings that you will likely never remember. But it does describe there a situation that's, that's uh, background for our story here. There are four northern kings, and they have been ruling over the Jordan Valley. Uh, there are five kings that live in the south in this Jordan Valley area, and these four kings have been ruling over them for 12 years. In the 13th year, after these four kings have already had a, another victory in battle over some other, uh, some other peoples, these five kings decide, we're going to rebel. We think that we can take them. Five against four. And they stage a rebellion. Uh, they try to grab back power. And they suffer a terrible defeat. It seemed, when I talk about these four kings and the five kings, and you think, well, this is all in just the Jordan Valley and, and uh, coming in from the north, that seems, sounds like a lot of kings for a very small portion of land. But when you read in the Bible about kings, often in the ancient Near East, these were just, uh, the king was a, his kingdom consisted of a city and just the surrounding pasture lands. So these were just very small areas that were presided over uh, by people that uh, were called here kings. When we pick up in verse 11, it shows that these kings have not only suffered a defeat, but all of their possessions and, uh, and many of their people have been carried off, uh, taken into exile in a sense, by, taken captive by these northern kings. And it's a warning that power grabs usually end poorly. When we try to uh, take things into our own hands and, and go to war, fight, battle in order to get more, uh, things, things don't end well. And, and, and that's the, the uh, early warning here. But in verse 12, the losses get personal because we learn there that among these five kingdoms was Lot, who was living in Sodom, and he had not only been a bystander to this, but he had actually been carried off. Uh, he had been uh, taken captive in this. No indication that Lot here was kind of like an architect of this battle. He wasn't the one who had come up with the idea, hey, maybe we can, maybe we can go to battle against these northern kingdoms. It wasn't his idea. But Lot, as we saw last time, He's the one who had undiscerningly walked into this decision. He's the one who had decided poorly and come to live among a people who were not only in rebellion against God, but as we see in this passage, they were in rebellion against others. So it was his decision to live among a people who had a reputation for rebellion that led to him being in such a uh, a, a difficult situation here and ended up being carried off. And, and it's a picture of the, the casualties of the undiscerning, that we don't necessarily have to be the ones instigating uh, a power play, but we can be uh, collateral damage in those power plays if we uh, are entering into relationships that are uh, unhealthy and undiscerning. So Lot warns against grabbing power and not going to war to get more. 
But Abraham teaches us an, a lesson about lending power. Everything up until this point in the, in the chapter has been about people who want more, who are trying to grab something for themselves. And Abraham shows us uh, that that's not the only way to relate to power. He shows us that we can lend our power and do so by uh, giving uh, to those who have less. What happens here is that God has blessed Abraham. And what we're going to see is a little bit of Abraham's character. We're often tested by not just how we get our uh, power or whatever uh, blessing that might come into our lives, but what do we do once we've got it? And we, we were eager to see what is Abraham going to do with this blessing that he has received from God? We, we learned in chapter 12, he's been commanded to, to be the one that's going to receive blessing to be a blessing. And we want to see what he's going to do uh, with that blessing here. And he, sh- talks, he, he shows us about lending power, giving what we have to those who have less. In verse 13, a messenger arrives from the battle. There has just been this defeat of these five Jordan Valley kingdoms to the four from the north. And the messenger arrives from the battle to tell Abraham that his nephew Lot has been taken captive. He's been carried off. And at that point, if it were you or I, a number of things would run naturally through our minds. At first, we'd think, well, this is Lot. This is, this is your nephew. This is someone that is, is family. And so you would naturally feel a measure of compassion for him. Like, you're, you're recognizing that he's been caught as a, a bystander in this, in this battle. And so you're, you feel a sense of emotion towards him. But then you remember what we looked at last week, and you, you remember that, hey, you had given him the choice to go anywhere he wanted. And he's the guy who chose poorly. He chose with a lack of discernment to put himself in harm's way, to align himself with people who we learned, the text said, they were great sinners. And so as you're hearing about this story, you're thinking, well, really Lot made this problem for himself. He, he, he made his bed, he should lie in it. You're, you're thinking, he, he brought this on himself. He, he caused this problem. And then you start thinking about the costs for yourself. What could you do, really? I mean, five kings had already gone into battle and they had suffered a terrible defeat. What, what are you going to do? It's not like Abraham is, is some master general or something. He, he, he'd be looking at his resources and thinking, I don't think I could uh, do much in a, in a battle. I feel for my nephew, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure what I could do. And then he'd likely be thinking, even if I was able to go into battle, and even if I was able to rescue my nephew Lot, I'm a foreigner in this land, and I would be making some very powerful enemies for myself. I I think when God opens up a door for us to help someone else, to lend them our power, that these are the two most common excuses that come to mind. Is the person worthy or do they 
do they kind of just get into this situation and they kind of deserve it? And is the cost too high? Do I really, do I really want to, to, to sacrifice this much for this situation and this person? But compassion doesn't add up the receipts. Compassion doesn't ask, how much is this going to cost? And thankfully, Abraham didn't ask either. He looked at the situation. He knew that Lot had, in many ways, brought this upon himself. He knew that the stakes were high, the sacrifices and the losses might be great, but he went in and he lends his power to someone who has uh, who, who is in great need. He calls on three of his allies, gathers up his men, and in a daring night raid, he rescues Lot. He brings back not only Lot's position, possessions, but all of these uh, Jordan Valley kingdoms, all of the possessions that had been lost, all the people who had been taken captive, he brings all of them home in this tremendous victory. And it's, An incredible victory, but you'd also have to say this is a very unexpected victory. Five kings have had 12 years to plan a battle to take back control of their land. And they lost spectacularly. Abraham has got about five minutes to decide what he's going to do to uh, rescue his, uh, his nephew Lot. And he goes in and has this remarkable victory. And you can't help but wonder how that happened. How did he have such success where others had had such failure? And the answer is that God empowers us to bless others. He wants us to lend to others, to to lend our power to others in need. And when we do, he energizes those efforts. He blesses those efforts to bring blessing to those around us. And again, it's a reminder of that original calling that we studied in Genesis 12, that when God said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. That that is not only God's commission to Abraham, it is God's commission to each one of us. And when we see the blessing that God has given us and recognize that that blessing is, is that we might be a blessing. He multiplies and energizes those efforts to bring blessing to those around us. And so the question as you look at the life of Abraham here is, how has God blessed me? What power and influence has God put in my life? And who are the people that God has also placed around me that I might bless? that I might be a blessing to? Who can I lend my power to? Who is in need and is looking for someone that might rescue them? Abraham used his blessing to bless others, and he shows us how to lend our power to others in great need. For some of you, you you think through the people in your life. For some of you, you think through the people you work with. You look, think through your neighborhood. You think through your family. Others for whom you might take your blessing and bless others. And for some of you, it might just be as easy as signing up to 
uh, help in the nursery once a month, uh, to serve as a greeter, to uh, uh, come on a rotation as, as uh, one of the ushers. Because if you're sitting on the sidelines at church, chances are you're sitting on the, sitting on the sidelines in your home, in your community, in the different the other relationships that God has placed you in and that God would desire for you to be a blessing in. So Abraham teaches us to not only to receive blessing, but to receive a blessing to be a blessing. And here that means lending the power that God has given us uh, to uh, serve those who are in greater need. So we've seen so far that we live in a world that grabs at power, that likes power plays, that goes to war to get more. Uh, we've also seen that uh, through, through Abraham that, it's, that we can lend the power that we have. But we also see through him next that we can also, and there are some times when it's important to refuse power. To refuse power when strings are attached. Sometimes gifts are, even free gifts, cost too much to receive. And there are, uh, there are times when power needs to be refused. Now, Abraham returned from rescuing Lot and the others, and when he does, in verse 17, there's this note that the king of Sodom comes out to meet him in the valley. He comes out, and the scene is described, and you're expecting to read on in verse 18 of something that the king of Sodom is going to say to him. He's come out to greet him. You're expecting there's going to be some interaction now between uh, the king of Sodom and Abraham. But you look at verse 18, and there's actually no description of that. In, in fact, uh, we don't hear anything about the king of Sodom again until verse 21. And so in between verse 17 and verse 21, instead of this natural progression of the interaction between uh, Abraham and the king of Sodom, there is this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And the reason is we're supposed to compare the king of Sodom and uh, here, uh, the king of Salem. Now, we're going to look at the king of Salem, Melchizedek, in more detail in a moment, but I want you to first see just this little vignette of him meeting the king. He first greets Abraham, and he does so with bread and wine. There is warmth and hospitality and friendship. Uh, he prays over Abraham and blesses him. And he gives credit to God for the victory that he has, just, he has just won. The way the verses are ordered, we are, again, supposed to compare the two of them. And so now when, we, now when we get to verse 21 and we actually read the description of how the king of Sodom greets Abraham, we've got this background in our mind of how the king of Salem uh, did uh, just the same. So in verse 21, he just, we, we, the king of Sodom welcomes Abraham with these words. Give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. He starts with gimme, and that's never a great place to start in your relationship with someone who has just delivered your entire kingdom and returned the entire uh, uh, in the possessions and uh, the people that you were intended to protect. You were charged to... Uh, to, to rule over. Uh, so he starts with Gimme. He's abrupt. 
he is disrespectful, and when he gives the words, they are words of a transaction. Give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. There's no warmth, there's no wine, there's no gratitude. There's also no prayer, there's no blessing, and there's no mention of God. Abraham, at that point, has heard enough. He knew, he knew the king of Sodom by reputation. He knew who it, the person that it was that he was dealing with, but here we get further evidence of just what kind of individual this is. Abraham has seen all he needs to see of the man's character, and he responds with a refusal to take anything from him. In verse 23, he actually expresses a vow where he, he, he has actually made a vow to God not to take even a thread or a sandal strap from, uh, or anything from him. And so this is a very strong statement that he is going to refuse this man's power. He doesn't want any of this man's possessions. He doesn't want anything that he would give him to pay him off or to uh, purchase his loyalty. And he gives a reason for that. He says, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. See, Abraham could see that the king of Sodom was not to be trusted. He wasn't a generous man, and so anything that came from his hand would come with strings attached. Everything that came from him would come with uh, some dangerous uh, connections that, uh, that were associated with it. I I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this. I know in Japan, I became very wary about unexpected gifts. Uh, I, I remember I was living, when I was living in Toyama, I had, a, had a, a neighbor that I had never met before, unexpectedly showed up at my door, knocked and greet, um, introduced himself to me, and he gave me some beautifully wrapped rice crackers. And if you're a foreigner in, in a culture that you don't understand and someone, a neighbor comes by and you're, you're kind of isolated in many respects and they, they give you a gift, you're like, wow, this is great. I love to meet neighbors. And you're, you're feeling good. And, and so, that's, so I opened them up. I enjoyed the rice crackers. They were very nice. And I just thought, well, I met a very friendly neighbor today. And then a few weeks more passed, and the same neighbor showed up again. And this time, he had another very beautifully wrapped package with some bean paste pastries in it. And I thought, wow, this guy is so generous. This is wonderful. And didn't really think much of it. And a few more weeks passed. Same neighbor shows up. He's got another gift. But this time he has his teenage son. His son is along because he would like for me to sign on to teach him weekly private English lessons for like the next year. And I realized at that point I'd been set up. I had now received so many gifts that my obligation was such that you can't really say no to some of the, to, uh, the question that he is now going to pop on me. Some, some free gifts are really expensive. Some gifts come with strings attached. 
And that was exactly what was going on here uh, with the king of Sodom. Something similar happens in each of our lives. There is a need for discernment in how we, how we respond to, uh, to the offers of power that we are given. There are relationships that come with dangerous strings attached, right? There, there are. There, there are. There are people who seem to be offering the kinds of things that we would like to have, but they come from a source that really shouldn't be trusted. And we know that those offers come with strings attached. There are promotions that come with unhealthy strings attached. There are offers, gifts, and opportunities that you need self-control and discernment to know when do I receive and when do I exercise caution. That leaves us with this guy named Melchizedek now. We've, we've looked at uh, why we shouldn't grab power. We've looked at when to lend power. Uh, we've considered how to refuse power, but we need to now look at how to receive power. To do that, we return to that guy that Abraham met with the bread and wine, the guy who was all hospitality, the one who was warmth and prayer and relationship. And we see that even at our best, we still need a priest. Not even Abraham, and this is Abraham at his best, not even Abraham was so good that he could just get by on being good. We all need a priest. Now, in verse 18, a king named Melchizedek greets Abraham with bread and wine. He's generous, he's warm, he's hospitable. And in verse 19, he blesses Abraham. At that point, we should be surprised. Because in chapter 12, we learned that Abraham was the one through whom God was going to bring blessing. And not just a little blessing, it was actually through Abraham that God was going to bring blessing to all people, to all the families of the earth. But here we see that the blesser needs to be blessed. We see that there's someone greater than Abraham. And again, this passage has shown us at Abraham at his best. This isn't Abraham at kind of the, the low point in his life. He is firing on all cylinders here. He is courageous, he is generous, he is trusting God, and he is enjoying the, the grace of God in his life. He's made sacrifices for, for others. He's willing to face loss, and he does so to rescue the oppressed. But what Melchizedek shows us is we can be as good as we can possibly be, and we still need a priest. We still need to receive blessing. And, and this is difficult because sometimes people who are good at helping others sometimes aren't good at being helped themselves. Uh, some people, uh, some, some people are, are, are good at, at serving others, but it's hard for them to be served themselves. I'm, I'm not pointing any fingers here, but uh, sometimes people who preach to others uh, find it difficult to learn from the people around them. Uh, that, that can happen as well. This can happen on various different levels, but sometimes it is difficult for people who give to also receive. And uh, 
that's the kind of thing that we see happening here. Uh, Peter learned, needed to learn this lesson, right? Uh, you'll remember the scene where Jesus begins to wash the disciples' feet. And when Jesus got to Peter, Peter said, no, like he, he starts to object to him, right? He, he says, in, uh, there's that line in John 13, 8, where Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, wash you, you have no share with me. And it's a picture that some of the most compassionate and generous people in the world spoil their own blessings through pride and self-righteousness. They think that they're too clean to need Jesus to wash them. They think that they are too pure to need someone to purify them. They are good at blessing others, but they are not willing to receive the blessing of God. What Melchizedek does in appearing in this chapter is show that we all need a priest. He shows that God's plan isn't just that we would bless others, but that we would receive the blessing. God's plan isn't just that we go about rescuing, rescuing the undeserving. That's an important part of his plan, but it's not just that. God's plan is that we receive his blessing through the priest that he's appointed. The message is that we all need a priest. To be clear, what I'm not saying is that we all need a pastor. This is, this is not the message that you all need me. The message of Melchizedek is that we all need Jesus. Melchizedek is pointing us to our need to receive the blessing of God through God's appointed priest, and that priest is Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament declares that Jesus is our great, great high priest. The word priest is, is a word that means like a divine go-between. It's a heavenly mediator, one who stands between God and man, and that person is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 9, and 10 says that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's the true king of righteousness. He's the true king of peace. He is the one who brings the blessing of God, and it is that blessing that you and I most desperately need. That's also why the New Testament never calls church leaders priests. Ever thought about that? The, the New Testament never refers to leaders and the church in the New Testament priests because when Jesus comes, he has become our high priest. There is no longer any need for another human to be a, a go-between between God and us because it is Jesus Christ who fills that role. There are still leaders in the church, but we're not standing between people and God. Jesus Christ alone fills that role. Jesus, in becoming the God-man, became the one through whom that we receive God's blessings. But to do that, we need to humble ourselves. We need to come before God in humility and say, I need you. You have something that I can't provide for myself, and I... I reject and repent of my self-righteousness thinking that I could do it on my own. I need the blessing of God. That takes humility to do that. 
And that's why Jesus said to, to Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't belong to me. You can't have any part in this. You, you need to be, have the humility to receive the blessing of God, not just to give blessing to others. That's why Abraham the blesser needs to be blessed by one who is greater. Now we can't leave the scene of Abraham and Melchizedek without noticing how it ends. After the prayer in ver- uh, of blessing in verse 20, it simply says, and Abraham, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It may sound self-serving to mention this as a pastor, but one of the ways that you uh, recognize God's blessing in your life and the one of the ways that you consistently recognize God's blessing in Scripture is by returning that blessing, returning a portion of that blessing. Here, it's not a picture of Abraham buying God's blessing. You can't buy the blessing of God. But in gratefulness for having received the blessing of God, you can return a portion of it. If you've truly received God's blessing, it will show in your life. It will show in your response. And if you haven't, uh, if, if God hasn't liberated your finances, it's probably a good indication that he hasn't truly liberated you. After its introduction here, the tenth or the tithe or the 10% becomes a consistent way in Scripture that people respond to the blessing of God. Again, they're not earning it, but they are responding to that blessing. It expresses their gratefulness to God. And in a world of power plays and ladder climbing and going to war for more, nothing could be more countercultural than giving to God, returning to him in recognition he is the one who has given us all that we have. And so it's a good indicator of how you view the blessing of God, how you have understood your need for God's blessing in your life. We recognize God's blessing by returning it. Now, I don't know where you where you relate to power. I don't know where power is intersecting with your life right now. I don't know if you're tempted to power plays in your relationship with your parents, in your way that you treat your children, in the way that you relate with your spouse or your friends or your work colleagues. But I do know that going to war to get more never ends well. And Lot shows us that there is usually collateral damage. Jesus is the one whose power we need to seek. And it takes humility to come before him and recognize that we need it. To recognize that we don't have it all on our own. Only he can provide what is missing in our life. We come to him to be washed of our sins. We come to him to receive the blessing of God. If you you have received it, you lend it to others. If you have received it, you have the self-control to be cautious and discerning in how you relate to those around you. And you look for opportunities. You look for those for whom God has made you, desires for you to be a channel of his blessing. You lend power to those in need of it. Let's look to God for his strength. Heavenly Father, we, we see in 
the world and in our relationships around us. A lot of power grabs, a lot of power plays. Give us the self-control not to get caught up in them. Give us contentment and restraint. Help us to be patient. Give us eyes to see people in need. Give us your compassion. Help us to lend them your power. But Father, give us the humility to receive as well as to give. Help us to be willing to receive help from others. Help us to receive the power that only Jesus can give. For we pray in his powerful name. In Jesus' name, amen. When we stand up as we sing our final